Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the second episode of the Draft Punk Podcast. We are your hosts, Desi and Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing well. Doing very well. So today's uh. episode is titled Agency, and this is an episode that we've been wanting to do for quite a while now. And um, so a little bit about my background, for those of you who don't know, is that I'm a huge sociology buff. I, ha- I uh, got my master's, um, finished my master's degree in sociology at the London School of Economics in uh, 2017. And um, in sociology, so when we talk about how to frame a society or like how a society is organized, um, one of the biggest discussions we have is the discussion between structure and agency. So structure, if you want to think about it, is essentially the framework, the um, almost like the building of society where you have laws, you have uh, social norms, you have things like gender, race, uh, social class. And essentially, these are the constraints that you need to work within when uh, you're living within a society or within a certain um, group of other people. Now, agency is on the other side of that is essentially the degree of which humans and individuals or actors are able to express themselves and have freedom and to be able to do things within that structure. So um, in a way, agency is like a set of degrees, the extent of which you can make meaningful decisions while being constrained by that structure. So now today we're going to try to take that concept and apply that to Magic the Gathering. So in Magic, in a way, uh, we can assume that the rules and the card sets themselves are the structure of Magic the Gathering. Now, these are essentially the things that you can't control. These are the things that, you know, to a greater extent, um, even though someone out there designed it, and yes, those people are human beings as well, we need to take these rules of Magic the Gathering and uh, the sets and assume that they're just laws. So that's just how it is, and we cannot control that. but what about agency? So agency is essentially, from my perspective, is every aspect of Magic the Gathering where we get to make these decisions. And again, it, they are varying degrees of being able to make those decisions. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with everything that you just said. Um, you know, so I, I come with a bit of a different background, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, I'm so excited to talk about this, right? Like I have my, my master's was in, in math and computer science. Um, and so to me, I, uh, while agency is still within the same framework, I just think about it a little bit differently, right? Agency here in magic, right? We have, uh, things that we can change and things that we cannot change, right? A, a set is just going to have the, its macro archetypes in the way that it's designed. Um, and, We'll, we'll, we'll do our best as, as players trying to win at, at this game to work within that structure and get the best versions of these archetypes that we can. But for example, uh, there's not, if, if we all are here and know Deathsea and, and me, so we probably remember um, the clear the mind archetype from Ravnica Allegiance, that archetype isn't going to exist no matter how hard you push it in some sets. It's just not, it's not there. Uh, The structure doesn't exist for it. And so there's not any degree of agency that you can exercise to make that happen. Um, But for me, how do I think about agency? So I I define agency to be the uh, ability to beneficially manipulate a probability distribution. Um, To take a little bit of a step back on what that means, um, any card, any game, is going to have a distribution that describes, uh, you know, how good things are. Right at any given point, you're going to have a probability of winning in a game. At any given point, you can take a card, but that card isn't going to make your deck 100% of the time. Right. This is the same reason as to why colorless cards are often more valuable in pack one than they are in pack three. Right. Colorless cards have a higher probability of making your deck at the end. Um, And so exercising agency in Magic and in Limited is often about making decisions to affect that probability distribution, whether it's on the card level, on the deck level, or on the game level, such that it skews the distribution 
so that it is beneficial to you. As you can sort of see on the, the screen right now, and I'll describe this for, for people who are just listening, there's what's called a normal distribution, right? Where you have a, a peak that is sort of the average um, and you have a, a, a standard deviation about moving away from that peak and that standard deviation and peak or mean define sort of the density of uh, this probability distribution. So one standard deviation in either direction is going to end up encompassing about 68% of what you can expect to happen. Um, and my goal in playing magic in terms of exercising agency is to take that distribution and to push it to the right, to push it over such that my mean, my expected, you know, the general um, expected output that I'm going to get from my card, my deck, or my game is actually higher. Yeah, and I think that one of the things about agency as well is that um, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And essentially, I think that we've, we've talked about this concept before, but at the end of the day, I think that if you can find a way to rationalize it yourself, I think that that, is, that in itself is a very powerful form of agency as well. Um, mm -hmm. So for this episode, we wanted to talk about how to empower yourself as a player. And uh, I think this is a concept that goes uh, for both experienced players and also for new players. Um, one of the most frustrating things in Magic, as, as we know, is, you know, variants. So like the things that we can't control. Um, a lot of times, you know, you're flooding out, you're getting mana screwed, and, um, you know, I'm sure that everybody's won and lost very close games. So how, how do you kind of uh, min-max or mitigate those, uh, those, those risks and those payoffs? So, um, how, so, Ryan, I wanted to ask you, how often do you get a bad uh, sealed draft pool or, um, or a, like, a bad draft in Magic the Gathering? Um, so honestly, I don't think it's very often. And I think that's sort of the, the point is that it can appear like it's often, right? It can appear like there was nothing that you could do in your seat or that you just opened this, uh, this, this ridiculously bad pool. Um, and I think the perceived notion of how often this happens is much higher than it is. Um, so I would say that most people would say that this happens maybe even something like you know ten percent of the times one in one in ten drafts, um, but it's it's much lower than that, although it might feel like it isn't, and that's that's because you need to be able to answer the question of like what what can we be doing, what can you do to actually reduce this probability, this question of how often do things fall apart, it's not you know the it's in your control more often than it's not. And so there's a variety of things that you can do to reduce the probability that you end up in a, in a bad deck, right? In sealed, um, it might feel like you have less agency. It might feel like you really can't reduce that probability, but this is why, and we, we mentioned this on our last episode, that often um, bad pools or perceived bad pools have a very nice aggressive solution because often cards that are good in aggressive decks look like they're, they're not as powerful magic cards. And so a, a bad pool often has more of those components and you can piece together a good aggressive deck and capitalize on the slower format. Uh, similarly in draft, um, you're going to have a higher fail rate if you just always play your first pick, right? If you just take your first pick and you completely put on blinders and you won't even skew away from it at all, at the end of the draft, you're going to end up in a worse deck, in my opinion, more often than you're not. Uh, unless, uh, I guess, to be clear, that strategy of first pick is sort of this, you know, very complicated thing that you've embedded or you understand things, right? Like on Arena, sometimes I'm sure in Eldraine it was correct to take um, to take Merfolk Secret Keeper or whatever over something great and just stay there. But for intensive purposes of this discussion, let's forget about sort of those anomalous cases, right? And the reason that you want to sort of stay open and not marry your first pick is because it reduces the probability that you end up in, in a deck that doesn't end up working out, right? Because you, you find the open lane and you pivot yourself into a deck uh, that inherently has less pieces cannibalized from it during the draft portion, which by definition is going to reduce the probability that you get a bad deck. 
Yeah, and I think that one aspect of uh, trying to increase the probability of, um, you know, of just being able to get as many wins essentially as possible, going as mm -hmm. far as you can with either your sealed pool or your draft deck, is to create your own luck. So I think that um, a lot of ways that we can look at magic is just so every single almost like good decision you make, right? It increases some percentage of your you know, uh, of your overall win rate. And I think that uh, one of the cool things about Magic the Gathering, and especially limited in a 40-card deck, when essentially 23 of those 40 cards are, you know, are, are essentially what you have agency over, is that every single card is actually extremely important to, you know, like... So, one of the things that um, I think that is very interesting in terms of magic is a lot of times I hear people say, oh, well, why don't you put, you know, Wings of Hubris in your deck, right? Because the thing is that they're like, okay, well, it's just one card. How important can one card be when, uh, you know, when you have so many cards in your deck and, you know, you might not even see these cards? And I think especially with the small card pool when you're playing with and limited in general... Um, it's really important just to make sure that every single card in your deck uh, is um, is worth a slot. Right. No, 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 that's totally correct. I mean, every piece matters, right? This is this is a game um, with, ar I mean, arguably high variance. If you look at the the win rates of the best players in the world, right? They're they're not they're rare. They're they're not even close to like eighty percent, right? We're talking yeah. we're talking seventy percent is considered very very good at this game. Um, and what that means is every little percent counts. If 70% is considered good, 1% change of an outcome is significant. It's quite significant. Uh, and so every single interaction between cards in your deck, every single decision, um, it matters. And it matters a lot more than I think feels natural to people because most of the time you think, oh, 1% is so small. But in in with respect to the system that we're talking about it's actually quite large one of the funniest things that people tell me generally um on stream and they're like hey desi why don't you why do you can see this game it's it, it's like a one percent <laughs> chance that you're gonna win and i'm like well i played like 200 games a, a week probably so that means that every week essentially i get to have Two unwinnable games. I get to win two unwinnable games. So I think that that's pretty cool. Um, these small sort of percentages and, and min-maxing, trying to figure out how to optimize your gameplay in Magic the Gathering is probably one of the most fun things, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, one of the most rewarding things as well, just being able to see your thought process come to fruition. Yep. And um, I think that when it comes to Theros specifically as a set, I think Theros is one of those sets that uh, that has been extremely strange in terms of how Theros has felt. And I think part of the reason of that is because um, when it comes to the cards in Theros, you really need to uh, take that concept to the extreme, where every single card in your deck really, really matters. And it's almost less about having actually good cards in Magic the Gathering, mm -hmm. um, but more of trying to build a narrative. So mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about building a narrative here. So building a narrative in Magic the Gathering is essentially the way that I would explain it is to try to focus on your, your own game plan, to try to see not only what your cards are trying to do and trying to find uh, the best way in order to express that, um, but also, but but also, uh, essentially drafting with that in mind as well, picking every single card, yeah. um, making sure that they work well together. I think one of the weirdest things about Eldraine is, uh, sorry, uh, about about um, about Theros as well, is that a lot of these cards they just look good and fine on the front side of things, but they vastly go into different archetypes. So a card like Loathsome Chimera, for example is a card that I've actually um, seen people play in, in essentially all green decks. I think that most people say, well, it's a very good green card. It's a you know three mana, four, one, and then it has recursion. So basically any green deck that can play Losum Chimera should play it. Now, what I've found is that uh, green decks in this format uh, vary quite a lot. 
So some of these green decks are good at attacking. Some of these green decks uh, really want to just stall out and go long. And in in which case, stalling out and going long, a lot of times this Loathsome Chimera is actually not the kind of a, a creature you want, you know what I mean? Like a 5-2 on the ground is not really uh, doing much for you if you're taking it to late game and trying to um, leverage your bombs or card advantage, even though Loathsome Chimera itself is inherent card advantage. So... Um, Building a narrative in in uh, in Theros is very important, and I think that this is one of the things that um, will lead you to a, a greater success in Theros uh, if you think more about that. Um, what have you found, Ryan, about uh, Throne of Aldrain and uh, sorry, I, I can't <laughs> say Throne of Aldrain about Theros and about uh, kind of the narrative of some of these cards? Have you found that some of these cards kind of a uh, fail to meet your expectations or they potentially went in a different deck than you first expected right so i um i guess you know this but i would say most well a good amount of our audience probably doesn't uh theros is the worst i've performed in any limited format ever uh i've <laughs> yeah. i've i've sort of gotten over the hump at least i think now right like i haven't in my last i don't know whatever eight drafts like i haven't gone worse than than two one or anything like that right. um but i uh you know, for, for most limited formats on Magic Online, I maintain about a 70% win rate across, say, like 80, 80 drafts. Sometimes, you know, it, it can go as low. It, it sometimes gets into, you know, like 75. Mm -hmm. Well, that's pretty rare. And then, like, you know, more often than not, it'll be, let's say it sits around 68. And occasionally I have a bad format where it was like, I don't know, 62, 63. Uh, in, <laughs> in, in Theros Beyond Death, it was a solid 30, right? Like, like we're talking my, <laughs> aver my average was 1-2. Uh, in my in my first, I don't know, 25 drafts, which is <laughs> real bad. And so I knew I was doing something wrong. I think what you're saying has a lot of merit. And I want to point something out about um, sort of one, why we're using the word narrative here, um, but sort of what, what this means both in general and with respect to the format. So like any narrative, uh, the, the pieces of the narrative matter. Yes, sort of your deck has this cohesive game plan that we're pushing towards. Um, but that story that you're telling, that game plan it's not in a vacuum, right? It's it's within it's with respect to this format, this structure that has been given to us that we can't change. And I think that the overall context of Theros led a lot of individual cards to behave in ways that I didn't expect, and for cards to look good that that look good to be worse, and cards that look worse to be to be better than my than my intuition. Uh, once I sort of adapted for the individual pieces of this narrative, um, I started seeing immediate success, right? This was things like in white decks taking Hero of the Pride much, much higher than I was and lowering my value of Daybreak Chimera. Sure. Not because Daybreak Chimera isn't a good card. It is. But if you remember how excited I was about it in the set review, uh -huh. I think it's, you know, been below both of our expectations. And maybe Loathsome Chimera is another good example of that. Um, and so you not only need to sort of tell this story with your deck and come up with a cohesive plan, but if the most of, most of any deck in limited is going to be filled with commons. And so there's filler minus commons and there's filler plus commons. And for me, I just had those swapped. What I thought was a, you know, a C plus was a C minus and what I thought was a C minus was a C plus. And so the general skeletons of the narrative, the story that I was trying to tell just had the wrong cards. Sure. And so my decks weren't as good at demonstrating a cohesive narrative within respect to the format. Um, I think it's a really important concept. Um, it's inherently related to synergy uh, where you need your pieces to interact with each other. Um, and so I guess to, to push this a little forward, what are the different synergies that you've noticed in Theros? How are those related to the different narratives you're talking to? And can you tie that back into agency so we can maybe get back onto the main topic? Yeah, so I think that some of the, um, some of the um, themes of Theros are very important. So things like auras and stuff like that. And uh, what, one of the things I've found is that um, a lot of times I'm just picking Myers Grasps over like final deaths and stuff just because there's a lot of synergies in terms of not only in black with hateful eidolon where you know you can draw a card whenever you kill something or heliod's pilgrim in white or you know um in general you have this constellation theme so a lot of what i found in this deck uh what a, a lot of what i found in this format is generally like 
obviously synergy is always important, but in this format more so than ever is it's really important to almost to make up for power level in this format with synergy. Just because in this format, a lot of the commons and uncommons, as you said, limited is composed of commons and uncommons. Um, a lot of this format, the commons are actually pretty flat in power level. So it's pretty unexciting, I think, a lot of the commons that, that you're going to see in packs. Um, it almost feels reminiscent of Dominaria, where it's like in pack, pack 3, pack 4, um, sorry, in uh, pick 3, pick 4, it's going to be like, well, there's no more cards in the pack that I'm really that happy to take. And because of that, I can't really read signals and stuff like that, right? Like, I don't know what's open, because all these cards are just like kind of on the same power level. Um, so in order to, uh, mitigate that risk of potentially not opening a bomb on color, right? Like that's out of your control. You, you can't really, um, like you can find ways to draft in order to keep yourself, keep, keep yourself open. For example, if you are pre predominantly are one color going into pack two or pack three, then you really give yourself that sort of agency in order to be able to maybe pick up a bomb and just play that bomb only on the splash. But, um... Without that, I think that you really need to find that power level in Synergy. So uh, a lot of these auras, a lot of uh, just finding basically ways to overlap your cards, um, cards that are enchantments, cards like, that, like a Nyxborn Marauder, for example, right? It's a four mana, four, three enchantment creature. And the only, pretty much the only good thing about it is that it, it costs double black, right? And double black, which generally is a downside, in this format, you have cards like Green Merchant of Asphodel, you have Blight Breath Catablebus, and you also have Constellation stuff. So in a way, this card has been um, actually a way to tie together a lot of black decks for me, just, just because it hits different points of uh, crossovers and trying to um, uh, get, again, that power level and synergy. So I found mm -hmm. a lot of agency in, again, trying to figure out exactly what your deck's trying to do. Find these cards that fit inside your deck. Even though they may not be a good card in general, it, if it makes sense in your deck, then that is a really powerful thing um, when approaching Theros Beyond Death. Yeah, uh, actually, that that's a really important concept. The Nyxborn Marauder, right, is the name of the card. Um, it... It's sort of what I call micro synergistic, right? It's not like an actual piece uh, of of synergy in the sense of like, oh, this goes with this, and that makes my deck great. Um, but it's the little tiny pieces of how that card works that bolsters the rest. Um, and this is a really good example of agency because it's unintuitive, right? That this this Nyxborn Marauder doesn't feel like you're exercising agency over anything. Oh, it's this filler card that I took. But taking it over a Temple Thief, sure. that's yeah. exercising agency. What you're effectively doing by taking Nyxborn Marauder over Temple Thief is you're saying, okay, I am going to choose that across the rest of the picks in this draft, anything that has the word Constellation got a little bump. Gray Merchant got a little bump. But as we were talking about it, all these little percentages add up. And so these different picks that feel completely inconsequential, they're actually very important. Similarly, there are going to be times when it's correct to take that Temple Thief because you haven't hit the density of two drops that you need because maybe you're slanting more aggressive or you really don't think you're going to care about Constellation, right? And in this scenario, similarly, Temple Thief is going to alter the value of cards just ever so slightly in a way that's more beneficial to your deck at the end. Uh, and these these tiny little decisions that that's the difference between a great drafter and and a good drafter is the ability to see those little nuances and exercise agency in that way. One of the concepts that I think is um, is very common when it comes to very high level drafters and people with high win rates is essentially this kind of philosophy of not leaving games up to chance. So. It's funny because game because magic is obviously a game of chance to a great extent, but there's a lot of ways again to risk um, to minimize that risk, and a lot of times you'll actually see players I guess take what we would like to call the discipline pick right where it's like okay well there's this like crazy card that potentially we can maybe splash for, or we can just take this temple thief <laughs> that just goes in our deck mm -hmm. and it's just a two two, 
And I think that both sides of that discussion is actually a very powerful um, argument and a discussion when it comes to agency, right? Because the thing is that <clears throat> one of the most important things for me is being able to rationalize that thought. So no matter which decision you make, you need to understand essentially what the what the um what the implications of that pick is so it's like okay well i am going to pick up this weaker card and potentially lower the general power level of, of my deck at the end however i'm going to have a consistent deck with maybe five two drops and some amount of three drops and four drops and i'm just going to be able to curve out and win a lot of these games where the opponent simply stumbles so mm -hmm. That is one way that you can actually uh, empower yourself in order to uh, become a better drafter. Now, on the flip side of that, you can also be like, okay, well, I'm going to pick up this Rise to Glory. It's probably not going to make my deck, but this is something that I'm willing to do. So this is something that I am, um, this is a decision that I'm going to make. And if it pans out, then it pans out. If it doesn't, then that's fine. I'm going to live with it, right? Like, essentially without regrets. Um, yep. Yeah. One other aspect of that, I think, that I wanted to ask you about is uh, Disenchants. So before, <laughs> we were talking a lot about Disenchants and trying to conceptualize, since Theros is this sort of enchantment-based set with, uh, with about 50 creatures being enchantments, um, how good, essentially, is a Disenchant? Um, well, so again, I'm still getting my, uh, getting my legs in this format. Uh, so how good has I'm it been for you? Uh, it's it's been fine. It hasn't blown me away, uh, but I'm still in the camp where I'm always playing the first copy and maybe the second. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, probably at, at this point, I'm always playing the second. Um, however, I could see that not being true. There have been plenty of times I've seen them stuck in my hand, or I've been very confused at what my opponent has, <laughs> and then it becomes very obvious the second I play an enchantment creature. Um, so I think that this actually has to do exactly with what uh what we're talking about disenchants they can be very powerful uh but they come honestly at a cost similar to considering colors in the draft right the difference between a single colored card versus a two color card versus a colorless card the fact of the matter is the probability those cards make your deck at the end of a draft it's different similarly uh the probability that you can cast a disenchant in any given game is going to be much lower than the probability that you can cast a temple thief. Why? Because you can always cast a temple thief. Yeah. You know, like that the the probability that demonstrates um or sorry, the, the the probability that dictates whether or not you can cast a spell, right, is just the amount of mana that you have. This adding a conditional layer, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of conditional spells, right? Like the removal spell the I don't remember the name of it. It's three. It's white three instant destroy target creature with power four or greater gain three life something Time like that. Surge, yeah. Now that card's I've I've actually seen it be good and been impressed with it more. But the smite the monstrous kinds of cards I've always just hated because they're expensive conditional removal spells. Uh, and sort of that probability of it being relevant in game is not worth the times when it's good because even when it's good, you're rarely you actually by definition of the card you're really not going to be going up on uh, uh, on mana all that much because they're expensive. I guess you can spend four mana to kill something that's six mana, but on average it's not going to be a significant advantage. You're going to hit something between three and five just because most decks are going to play creatures between three and five. Yeah, and and um. That actually leads me to this kind of philosophical question that I have for you as well. Okay, mm -hmm. so this uh, this is <laughs> this is this might be the most philosophical question I've ever asked uh, in terms of math. <laughs> All right. So um, my question for you is, why is a sideboard card considered a sideboard card? So <laughs> you know, like obviously we're always talking about sideboard cards, and it's like, oh yeah, well this card's a good card for the sideboard. Well then. Well, if you're mainboarding it, is it still a sideboard card? So, so to what extent yeah. is a sideboard card a sideboard card? <clears throat> I actually think this this has a very explicit definition, um, right? So if you want to think about the value of a card, the value of the card, right, is sort of what it, it, what it contributes to your win percentage across a match. Uh, can I assume we're in best of... I'm we're talking about sideboard sure. cards, so I'm assuming sure. we're in best of three. <laughs> um, so... So uh, the, the value of a card inherently is the 
uh, added win or just the win percentage that it, the the percentage it contributes to your win percentage, right? The amount of contributes there. So like bad cards have negative values because they lowered your win percentage. Yeah. So a sideboard card is a sideboard card because the uh, the probability that it increases your win percentage is is low, right? Its value in game ones on average across the set of all possible archetypes is lower than on average your what that 23rd playable is going to be. However, there are archetypes or sets of cards or strategies that change that value and that probability such that the impact is higher than many cards in your deck. And hence, you don't want to play it in the first game because it isn't going to properly contribute to that win rate in the way that you want, but it will under some set of scenarios. Uh, and formats where traditional sideboard cards become you know, main deck cards, like Disenchants potentially in Theros Beyond Death, is because the context of the format changes that value. It changes the probability that these cards are impactful to your win rate. Yeah, so uh, one of the... One of the um, one of the things that I found in this format that I felt that gave me a lot of agency as well is understanding essentially when to when to run Wings of Hubris in the main mm -hmm. board of your deck. So uh, two so two good examples I have are of of times when I've in, where where I've main boarded uh, Wings of Hubris and I thought it was actually correct is first of all I had this Demir deck with a bunch of like Nick's board Marauders and Underworld Chargers. And generally, when you're playing like a black-blue deck, you're trying to finish with flyers in the sky. Mm -hmm. And in my deck, it was just all derpy ground attack creatures, and they're like <laughs> three and four attack things that can potentially get blocked by like Riptide Turtles. I didn't have like Mogus's favor or anything in my deck to like help push that over the edge, right? To like maybe uh, maybe they block the Riptide Turtle, and then I get a Mogus's favor their wall to finish it off. Um, so in that in the context of that deck, I felt like I needed the Wings of Hubris. Mm -hmm. So that was me essentially expressing my agency in this format, understanding the narrative of my deck, what the story is trying to tell in my deck, and essentially um, mainboarding the sideboard card because I felt like this is a card that I absolutely needed. Um, and it was a card that was better than, I guess, my 23rd plus cards, right? So exactly. like, these, the, these are the cards, and that's essentially what I describe as a sideboard card. So it's like sideboard cards are essentially like, sometimes they're like 26th, 27th cards kind of thing. Where it's like, well, these cards could make your deck if you didn't have these other things. Just because, as you said, um, overall it's going to lower the, the, the win percentage and the expected value of it is not going to be high enough in order to main board. Now the second time, right. the second place where I've seen Wings of Hubris um, be actually not good is in a... a is in the main board of uh, uh, of like green red decks with Furious Rise. So the thing is that generally you feel like Wings of Hubris is really good in sort of this the sort of red green beatdown deck, right? But a lot of times when you're running Fur Furious Rise and you're trying to grind out these games, so you're trying to win by actually just essentially trading one for one with your opponent and then being able to get that sort of value off of your engine, and to some extent to some extent, your escape creatures like Underworld Ragehound and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, Wings of Hubris in that deck, it just increases... It, so I've seen it increase the chances of you not being able to stall out that game because you have this card that almost doesn't fit with that grindy game plan. It's like, sure, it's a good finisher, but as a card, it wasn't worth the space in that deck. So kind of the coming to the understanding is like, in this format, it, it almost blurs the definition of what a sideboard and a mainboard card is. Just, just because a lot of these sideboard cards can, to some extent, be successful in the main board. But a lot of times when we're talking about sideboard cards, what I'm looking at is, are the times where it's not successful. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. the fail rate of a lot of these cards are extremely high. And yep. um, that's something that I think is very important to keep in mind. Yeah, and they, they introduce some important things. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not super familiar with that archetype. Um, I think I played against it once and they didn't have a wings. Um, but yeah, wings within the context of your entire deck uh, can certainly end up being worth the inclusion because of the way it interacts with your entire game plan. Or in this case, 
not worth the inclusion because of the way it doesn't actually interact towards that entire game plan. And on the notion of sideboard cards, there's actually another really important uh, concept to relate, which is um, variance, not in terms of, well, I mean, it is in the terms that, term that we use it. So certain strategies, certain game plans, and certain cards promote uh, high variance uh, outcomes versus low variance outcomes, right? A Wings of Hubris uh, is going to range from completely unplayable do-nothing in a game to the literal card winning you the game. Yep. That that's a very high variance card in its out in in what its outcomes are. Where uh, in general, your best uh, your best sort of curve filler cards, right, are these above rate creatures that are very low variance, right? They usually do the exact same thing, and they almost always contribute. Um, they're never going to be the best card winning you the game, like Wings of Hubris is, but they're also never going to be this card stuck in your hand that doesn't really do anything. What's important about this is the value of those cards actually change within the context of the game. So let's say you're losing, right? When you're losing, you often want a strategy um, that is going to be higher variance rather than lower variance. Sure. And the reason for this is you only care about whether or not you win. It's yep. not about, oh, I almost got there. And so a low variance strategy when you're losing is going to have a lower probability of actually getting you to winning than a higher variant strategy, which which will. And similarly, if you go the other way when you're winning, a high variant strategy can increase the probability you lose where a very low variant strategy um, doesn't. And conceptualizing that and understanding that and using the way that you design your decks uh, to keep that in mind can also help give extra texture to these sort of sideboard cards, either in the main or even after sideboard. I think one interesting aspect to um, to go off of your point about like we're trying to find like those higher variance cards or trying to like spike uh, power at some point in the game, um, it's very important when you're scrying, right? So in this format, like a lot of times uh, you have these omens that that inherently have like strike two on them, and mm -hmm. a lot of times I see uh, players keeping cards on top essentially because they're like, okay, well at least it's better than a land, right? And in a way, that's not really, like, a winning way of thinking. Because a lot of times it's like, well, you know, you you need a card that's going to be a lot better than that in order to win this game. So, yes, it could be a land. But, like, honestly, even, even if you, like, double bottom with your Scry 2 and you hit a land, well, you're closer to that uh, card that's actually going to potentially win you the game. Um, and not, yeah. like, not like the Temple Thief or, or the maybe sometimes even, like, a Nyxborn Marauder, which is, like, a fine uh, mid-range card yeah, being kept on top. So um, exactly, <clears throat> it's really under it's it's really important uh, to understand that that you do have agency in terms of these games. Every single one of these decisions is not like okay, well, uh, I'm gonna keep this next board marauder on top, and I couldn't do anything about it. And sometimes that is true. I think sometimes that is true where it's like it's just correct, and you can make a good a, a good argument in order to just keep this card on top because it's good enough at the time, but. Um, realize that that is a decision that you have to make, and um, again, all of your decisions impact uh, the flow of a game um, yeah. in the end. And, and that's actually, that's how you learn, right? The, this sort of um, identifying the games in which you could have done nothing is a skill, right? It is extremely skillful, in my opinion, to finish a game of Magic, lose it, and go, you know what? I stand by all of my decisions. If I played the same game again, I would make them all the same. Yep. Right. Like that—that's a skill. And it, if you can realize that, then similarly, you should be able to realize your mistakes, right? And realizing your mistakes is how you learn. Um, my actually, my my dad teaches a course at NYU called okay. "The Nature of Success." It's a very uh, successful course, actually, uh, at NYU. Uh, and he wanted to call it "The Nature of Failure." Um, because, Ooh, that's spicy. because very, very, very importantly, like failure is almost a prerequisite for success. Um, and you know, that would be, it's a little bit more of an intimidating name. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so he didn't end up going with it, but failure and success while they're sort of opposites are very, very related. Um, and understanding what your mistakes are, why they were mistakes and how to, uh, improve, uh, the next time is the best way to get better. I think for me, that's one of the most important aspects of this discussion of agency in general, is that in Magic the Gathering, a lot of times it's hard to prove that you're right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. 
Almost so impossible. in Magic the Gathering, a lot of times winning doesn't mean that you're right. Losing doesn't mean that you're wrong. So from that perspective, how in the world can you figure out like what is good and what's not? Right. And I mean, for it's, me, it's so hard. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and it is very difficult, right? For all levels of players. I think one of the most important things for me is just understanding what you can control and what you can't control. So essentially that sense of agency is like it's it's almost it's almost invigorating. It's almost like um, freeing, you know, from the chains of a Magic Gathering variance where uh, essentially whenever I draft and whenever I make plays and build my decks, whenever I get salty, it's generally about lands, you know, and that's like something that I can't control. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to get better. Eventually one day I'm going to not be salty about drawing like 15 lands in my, uh, you know, in my top half of the deck or whatever. But the thing is that I never have regrets when it comes to making picks, whenever it comes to building my deck, whenever it comes to certain ways I played. Because essentially, I've built up my sense of agency in Magic the Gathering to the extent where I, I, that is the only thing I know that I can have faith in. And that's not only true for good players, I think, I think that that can be true for like newer players as well. And it doesn't matter if your way of thinking is wrong as long as as long as, uh, as long as you try to stay objective and you realize that this is something that I had control over, what would have happened if I'd done something else? Yeah, that's actually, it's, it's funny um, because I guess maybe uh, you said something like you don't have regrets, right? Yep. Um, but also what you inherently described is the definition of regret. So I'm very curious to sort of hear, hear the way that you go. So, so regret in the way that I use the word is sort of defined as... Uh, the delta from the best you could have done. So if you are really far off, if what you did was very far from the best you could have done, that's you—you you, that's a large amount of regret. Uh, and if you, it wasn't the best that you best decision you could have made, but it was close to the best, it's a minimal amount of regret. But there's still sort of regret. Um, in fact, a lot of the uh, um, algorithms that play games, uh, like the algorithm that plays Go is sort of based on, uh, and the algorithm that plays poker is based on, you know, trying to teach these computers to minimize regret, Okay. right? To try and figure out the different places where they could have made decisions better. And they don't need to get the perfect decision. They don't need to get it right every time. They just need to be as close to the right decision as they can. And they try and minimize that over the course of a game, which I think is sort of what we do when we draft as well. You can't guarantee, you can be very confident in what you do, Deathsea, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't guarantee that you take the correct pick. Yep. You just try your best to take the correct pick. And when you don't, and you can figure out that you didn't, you learn from it. The biggest difference for you is that you're quite a good drafter. And so it's pretty rare that you have a large amount of regret that you're so far off base. Mm -hmm. But taking slightly the wrong card is still, I guess, by definition, a little bit of regret. Yeah, so I guess like in terms of regret, basically the way that I look at it in terms of magic is that I can only make the best decisions with the information I've got. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And when and if something was wrong and there was actually a rational reason in order uh, uh you know to basically um make the make a different decision than the one I did then in that sense, I will feel like I've learned something, but that isn't necessarily like regret, if that makes I guess sense. that's fair. I'm sort of, um, this is where they're where our backgrounds are different. Yeah. And sometimes mm -hmm. I struggle to separate the math definitions of things versus like the human definitions of things, right? And regret to humans is a feeling, right? It's like, do you, and, and I think what you're saying, which is probably true, I don't either. Like I never regret the decision that I make. Right, I make it confidently, and if you know what, if it's wrong, I'm not upset about that, but I'll learn from it. Right, whereas sort of the math definition doesn't doesn't include, uh, you know, being being a motive at all in there, and it's like, no, you could have done a little bit better. Try and try and try and get closer next time. <laughs> but I but I think your definition of like the human feeling emotion of regret is actually not incorrect because the thing is that I think a lot of times in that situation, even though we may not feel a regret. People regret picks, right? It's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, I should have picked that black card because, well, here I got opened. Here, here I opened, um, whatever, like a Wolf Strider or whatever, right? Like now I regret not picking that black card over the other card. 
But but yeah. Yeah, so essentially I feel like that is because we as Magic the Gathering players, and probably in life as well, is that we essentially always assume that we have agency and that we try to look at things very objectively, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not going to feel bad because, well, I didn't pick that black card because I didn't know about this next, you know, this Woe Strider that that was going to be passed to me. And I and I'm not sure if that's because of like all my years uh, in in academic sociology that I've just become that I've like essentially tried to hit that pinnacle of objectivity, you know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. it's like honestly, I don't regret anything <laughs> anymore, and I don't know if that's like a bad thing or a good thing. You can take that how you want, but essentially, I just I just don't really feel bad about things that I essentially have no control over. Yeah, and and that's totally fine. Well, I think one of the biggest differences here, right, is that we we have a um, a really great model of what to expect in our heads during a draft, right? When when I open a black card that's insane in pack two, I know that there was no way that I could have known that I would open a black card um, that that was this good in pack two, and that shouldn't have affected any of the decisions that I made in pack one. Yep. Right, people that are less experienced with less of a you know strong model of how draft works may go, oh, this is a decision. You know, I could my deck would be so good if I had just taken those worst black cards in pack one instead, because now I would have this stupid bomb rare. Sure. And they're not able to make that connection of, but there was no possible way to have that incorporating your decision. However, let's say it's pack two, pick four, and you get past that woe strider. At that point in pack two, if I'm there, I'm thinking about, okay, clearly nobody downstream is black. Could I have figured out that nobody downstream was black in pack one and affected my draft differently? And I'll come up to some conclusion about whether or not I made a mistake or could have made a mistake. It's hard to guarantee or know that. But maybe I'll go, you know what? I really didn't pass much good black and I could have speculated on a not even like a strong speculation right like there was a mogus's favor pack one pick seven which is a little late for the card and i took another card for my deck and i guess i could have taken that favor right like that's that's how regret plays into how i learn it's not that i'm regretting my decisions it's that i'm taking the information that's present to me and trying to learn from it based on the past events yep so every single pick you make you in a draft Every single play you make in a magic game, whether that's constructed, whether that's um, you know standard, modern, legacy, EDH, uh, or limited, or uh, any form of drafting, there's always an opportunity cost, right? Like you're always doing one mm-hmm. thing over another thing, essentially. Um, a lot of times, even when you're playing a game of magic, when you're like, okay, well, I only have one card in my hand. Well, you still have a decision. Do you play the card or not? Right? right. So it's like. There's a lot of different points in Magic the Gathering where uh, you do have decision points and where um, trying to reflect on these sort of decision points that you have is something that's extremely complicated and it's going to be something that oh, yeah. you're going to have to essentially uh, you know, fight your inner demons with over the course of your Magic career. Um, it's something that you need to find a balance in as well. So I think that it's very difficult because it's like you want to stay objective, but then you also um, need to uh, like to some extent be results oriented, right? Where you're like, okay, well, this card felt good. This card is a card I like. And where do you find that sort of balance between objectivity and trying to, you know, actually um, uh, uh, build off of your results and build off of essentially uh, the reality that you face? So. So, uh, yeah. So uh, what do you think about that, Ryan? Um, I mean, I basically uh, agree with uh, almost everything that you said there. Um, just to add add one one note, right, when you sort of started off that discussion with, you know, every, every everything is sort of a decision, right? Even if you have one card in hand, right, you have this decision about whether or not to play it. Um, I think something important to highlight is there are a lot of places where I think the average player thinks there's no decision when really there's an abundance of decisions. Um, One example of this is let's say you draw a card for turn. It's a land. You have one land in hand. You have a bunch of creatures on board. Sometimes in that situation, even if your opponent could line up blocks to completely decimate your board, 
you could, if you can quickly enough think of a specific card in the format that would make them be afraid of that, like, can you make an attack that makes them afraid of a specific card such that they make a block, yeah. right? That that will benefit you because they'll think you have this card, right? Not only will they play around it that turn, they'll think they got you and play around it for a couple other turns. And that gives you more time to draw more cards, yeah. right? You're opening up the door, right? You're trying to like pry through this door about like in this position where you're losing so hard when really you can, you can sort of make a path for yourself with a variety of different kinds of plays, whether or not that's increasing variance to try and open the door for your opponent to make a mistake or, which is kind of, I guess, what that attack is doing <laughs> anyways. It's just a little bit more uh, particular, but I, I definitely liked what you had to say for sure. Yeah, so uh, in terms of gameplay when it comes to agency, I think that that's a really cool thing as well. Like um, one, one aspect of magic that I think that people don't talk about very often are making attacks in, in situations where your opponent can't block, right? So, mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of situations where, like, maybe you attack with a Pious Wayfarer, right? Pious Wayfarer, one mana, one, two, if you play an enchantment, uh, then you give somebody else plus one, plus one. So, because of the existence of a lot of these Flash enchantments and auras in this format, a lot of times it's kind of hard to block that thing, especially when you're tapped out, right? So, a lot of times you can kind of sell the story, right? Understanding that you have agency over a lot of these attacks that in a way, are like not actual attacks if you know your own context of your own hand. But in the context of the format, there's a lot of attacks, a, a lot of these attacks that you can make and a lot of these attacks that you can risk. And understanding that you're not making that attack is a very powerful thing as well because you yep. actually made a decision there when in some reality, or in most realities, I think, for most players, they think that they didn't have a decision there. So a lot of magic is about these sort of hidden aspects where you can make decision points. And again, all you know, we've been talking about this concept where all these percentage points build up. But one of the most important parts is that yeah, you can be salty about stuff and you know, I'm I'm like one of the saltiest people out there. Like you can be frustrated about magic and be salty, but you can still also, at the same time, go back and understand, okay, well, I could have made these decisions. I could have done this a little bit differently. And essentially, that's how you um, emotionally, or at least for me, cope with this sort of um, precarious reality of Magic the Gathering, where a lot of times there, there are a lot of games you can't win. And there's also a lot of games where you're going to win unwinnable games that you're going to win a game where you shouldn't have won. Yep. So... When it comes to the context of different formats in general, I think that a lot of times one of the most, um, one of the biggest kind of, I don't really want to say mistakes, but more of a misunderstanding that I see is about actually misunderstanding what the format actually is about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, one of our favorite formats here, and uh, that is the format of War of the Spark. Okay. It's a great example for this. So, War of the Spark, this is a format where essentially every single player that I've ever talked with, like 99% of people, they describe War of the Spark as a bomby format, right? This is the bombiest format that there ever was. There's all these like bombs and stuff like that, and a lot of times you have no agency in terms of doing anything because, well, if they play their Liliana, right? Their Liliana Dreadhorde General, well, what are you going to do? If they play their, um, I don't know, like their Egyptian god card, what, what are you going to do? And um, so I guess uh, give me your thoughts a little bit on what War of the Spark was about and why people misunderstood it as a bomby format. So this is such a phenomenal example, actually. Um, so the naturally, there are a lot of cards in War of the Spark that snowball. Right, these these planeswalkers sort of produce so much more value than we're used to getting at uncommon, and so decks were sort of chock full of these um, value engines that really pulled people ahead and let things snowball while also having phenomenal rares, mythics, and even some uncommons that were just completely unbeatable. <clears throat> um, but that's not actually true when you think about the context of the format. Once you realize that every single card that made you think the format behaved in that way, that it was bomb heavy and that these things snowballed. Um, you realize that all of those cards 
require being re- require being at board parity or ahead. Right? Playing these planeswalkers while behind on board or some of these other cards while behind on board, they they actually went from substantially above par to like a little bit below par. And once you come to that realization, you just start to highly prioritize two drops and being proactive. Every cheap thing that you can get, you throw into your deck. Because you know what? If you're playing cheap cards, that increases the probability that you have a better board presence when you play your Planeswalker and decreases the probability that your opponent has a better board presence when they play their Planeswalker. So it took what looked to be this bomb-heavy format and morphed it to this very lean, low-curve format. Not that it was inherently aggressive, but it was very proactive where your curve was one of the most important things. Yeah, so... Even for me, at the beginning of War of the Spark, and by beginning I mean like essentially the, essentially like the first two months of War of the Spark, <laughs> right? I was playing War of the Spark, and I was I got to a point where I was so upset because I was like losing to Planeswalkers, and I was losing to like um, you know all these mythic rare like uh, bombs in terms of like uncon uh, in terms of removal spells. Like there's that Black uh, X finale or whatever that just like destroys oh God, your entire board. Cool. The finale of uh, Dev- uh, of Eternity, I think. Anyways. And um, I was losing so much, right? And I was like, wow, this is a terrible format. You know, it's just, you know, it's all about these uh, high power level cards and you can't do anything. And at the moment that I kind of took a step back and uh, tried to look to what extent I had agency in this format, I was like, wow, all right. So maybe I can try something else, right? And this thing that you're talking about having this sort of early game um, and being able to leverage the board, cards like Dread Malkin, cards like uh, Baleful, mm-hmm. Str- uh, sorry, not Baleful Strix, uh, Sky Theater Strix, yep. right? Both which is which is a great card um, in the format of War of the Spark, which a lot of people I think are still pretty low on. Um, mm-hmm. But just understanding that this like garbage two drop that I don't think many people would have rated very highly uh, in an in initial set review or anything. Um, this is one of the cards that actually allows you to stay in the game when your opponent has these kind of crazy bomb heavy decks. All right, and one of the interesting things as well is that. Most of the decks I found in War of the Spark that did well are actually these decks just consisting of commons and uncommons. And mm-hmm. it's like these decks with commons and uncommons just curving out, having like um, some amount of value in terms of like the common value engines and stuff like that, cards like Spark Reaper, um, really led to a really high, su- high success rate. And it changed that sort of perspective, that reality of War of the Spark for me. So understanding that a format may not be the way that you initially expected is a powerful thing, I think. Because Theros is a very similar thing as well, where it's like, okay, well, we thought that this format's going to be a grindy format with all these escape cards, and, you know, games are all going to stall out, which I did think in the beginning. But now I understand that there's actually a lot of ways to just go either under or over those uh, those slow, dirty decks with these decks that are very, very good at attacking. Mm-hmm. I, I, I completely agree. And it fits into the same sort of scope that we've talked about where uh, this shell, this skeleton, this format, you have no control over what the cards in it are, right? You don't have control that cards like, uh, you know, Dream Trawler exists or whatever, um, but you do have control over what your deck looks like. And that can drastically change your ability to beat cards like Dream Trawler. So one of the interesting exercises that I want you to do at home is to whenever something happens that you felt was out of your control I think a good exercise is to think well what could have what could I have done uh differently that maybe could have um changed that reality so you know it's fine to be upset but then after you're upset after you calm down a little bit you look back and you reflect on the decisions you've made either in the draft portion or in the game or in the gameplay decision right and i think it's important also to ask well are there things that i'm missing right things that i don't even that i didn't even consider and so all of these things are very important aspects in order to become better as a magic the gathering player 
Absolutely. And uh, one, I think you mentioned something really important where you said, you know, think about the draft as well. Often one of the reasons why it's so hard to determine if you could have done something differently and why it feels like you really couldn't is that certain decisions you made were hours ago, right? Like it was, it was the draft you did yesterday. And there was a point in which you took a, you know, your 23rd filler common, but you could have taken uh, a plummet. Right, and now you don't have a plummet, and you're losing to a deck with a bunch of flyers. And was that decision correct? I'm not sure, but you'll never really think about it enough if you don't go that far back and understanding where you had agency. Yep. So I think that uh, a good way to conclude <clears throat> with our final thoughts is just in general, it's better to just always assume that you have agency. So. Yes. You know, a lot of things may be out of your, your control, but honestly, the best way to approach it is just like, okay, well, I probably could have done something about it. And I think that's the best philosophy that 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 you can internalize when it comes to Magic the Gathering or honestly, just most, most games in general, right? Like, what could I have done better? I did something wrong. And, um, you know, I'm going to figure out how I can mitigate this for the next time. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Also, like, the, the note about assuming agency means like if if you assume you don't you never explore whether or not you could have had it yeah. right but let's say you didn't end up like there was no agency you could exercise it really was out of your control by assuming you have it and thinking about it and trying to figure out what you could have done differently you will come to the conclusion that you couldn't right if you go the other way around you'll never figure out if you could yep yep um yeah so i think in essence, the punk way of drafting is about finding ways to take control of your Magic the Gathering, right? You know, to take control of essentially what your reality is and what your fate is. Um, for example, yesterday I had a deck with uh, three impending dooms, right? So I had picked up three impending dooms quite early, and I didn't have any two drops, all right? So uh, in pack three, I ended up picking, like, the Skola Grave Dancers, like, essentially, like, first pick. And I was like, all right. And so now I got stuff to jam onto my creatures. Uh, and I have creatures that can get stuff jammed on them. And essentially what my game plan is, is just, well, I'm going all in. If they have it, I lose. And I think that, that that's a very powerful thing to also just accept as well. I understand that this is what I did. I understand that this is essentially what I'm doing. And essentially, and essentially I understand if they have this, then they have this. And, yeah, you can't uh, be afraid of losing. Yeah, exactly. And the deck ended up only going six wins, uh, six out of seven. But, <laughs> you know, it almost got there. Like, I got to the final boss. Um, but um, it's just a lot about just understanding what sort of power you have um, over Magic the Gathering. And, again, you can't control a lot, but you can control also a lot. So Yeah, um, a lot more than you would think. Yeah, a lot more than you think. So, for me, there's nothing more frustrating than seeing... Uh, seeing friends and other players and viewers and stuff be upset about something when they haven't, you know, considered a lot of these op uh, these alternatives and they haven't uh, fully optimized their decks and their draft in order to avoid that. Completely agree. So there's nothing wrong with complaining, I think. But again, don't let it stop you from thinking that you didn't have any sort of control or agency over what you did. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, you can do what you want. If you want to complain all the time, complain all the time. Yeah, but. I mean, that's me. Like, honestly, <laughs> I have both. I have both, you know what I mean? Like, I love complaining all the time, but also at the same time, you know, a deep dive into the sort of decisions we made throughout the entire drafting process. Yeah. So, so uh, any final thoughts here, Ryan, on the concept of both structure and agency? Um, I understand that a lot of people think, you know, Magic is just like, well, it's a game you just play your cards. Not a lot of decisions matter, especially in limited, right? People are like, oh, well, limited is just all about luck. It just depends on what you open. If you don't open the bombs, if you don't get the removal, then you can't really do much about it, right? So Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of those things. I mean, people are like this in, in life as well. Actually, one of the, if I'm going to tie up with anything, it's going to be that the uh, foundation that you learn in Magic doesn't it's not static to magic it doesn't just apply to magic agency is a, a concept that you can sort of take with you anywhere uh and it's very important 
within any system that you have to understand what you can and can't control and learn how to control what you can control and how to learn from that. Um, so that, that, I mean, that's, that's the way that I would really take this out if I had to is that yes, um, you know, a lot of people complain complain about complain about variants in magic. Most of the time, there is agency that you can use, right? You you can mitigate that variance in some way, and mitigating variance is often, um, I would cite as one of the most important skills in magic is learning how to do that. But it's also extremely important to learn how to do that in life too. Yeah, right? everything and, has variance, and I think that that's a very powerful concept to leave off on, um, where. A lot of times life is almost like a draft, right? Where certain seats are going to be a lot harder than other seats. A lot of drafts are not going to be clear, right? A lot of drafts are going to be a complete train wreck, but you're essentially trying to figure out how to uh, make sense of that train wreck, right? Like we all live in our, like we all have our different circumstances. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have our own problems and stuff like that, right? We all have our own issues. And essentially like a draft like or like a sealed pool, it's... The luck of the draw, but how to optimize the luck of the draw, right? Mm-hmm. So in Magic the Gathering and in life, luck will always come and go, but having faith in your decision-making and your thought process is eternal. 